Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined, as always, by Dmitry Kalyagin. There's a whole lot of things to talk about this week. Another week in of the Ukrainian counteroffensive against Russia. We have France wanting to join BRICS. We've got things heating up in Serbia and Kosovo in the church. We've got Cyprus. You know, it never it never gets tired in Cyprus with the with the that's really kind of where we see the most division of the recognition of the Ukrainian schismatics who, you know, continue to be propped up by the ecumenical patriarchs. So we have a lot of big things to talk about today, a little bit of Armenia, Azerbaijan, Caucasoid talk as well. Dimitri, how are you doing? Yeah, doing great, Conrad. Good to be here. Yeah, I've noticed the news about Ukraine and Russia, at least the conflict on in the Zaporozhye region has really been uh, not stagnant, but actually very active. In fact, the numbers at the moment, I mean, they're in the speculative range, but we're looking at somewhere between 50 and 170 Ukrainian tanks at least destroyed. And this is almost two weeks in into the actual Zaporozhye offensive. So at this point, uh, overall numbers based on what the Western powers have given Ukraine, we're looking at you know roughly maybe a fifth, if not a quarter of all the tanks they were provided are actually uh, confirmed to be destroyed. A footage is being released consecutively, and you know we are actually getting footage of Leopard Two tanks, which are probably the second best tank that the Ukrainians are receiving from Western powers, at least in terms of expense and firepower. And we're seeing uh, many of them, at least in the tens, sort of. Uh, destroyed on the sides of roads by Russian missiles, uh, you know, airplanes, mines, etc. So uh, Russia has been very active actually defending the Zaporozhye front, and Ukraine doesn't seem to have moved in, at least uh, hasn't taken any significant ground. So in fact, the um, the defenses are holding strong, which is, I think, the biggest news of the week is that the status quo is still there, Zaporozhye still technically belongs to Russia, at least part of the oblast. I mean, at this point, the Ukrainians have barely even broken through in most places the first of what I believe are four major lines of Russian defense, which at this point, I believe even Russia had anticipated falling back to their second and third lines at this point in a supposed Ukrainian counteroffensive. And we're seeing not just, like you said, Zaporozhye and southern Donetsk being the kind of real focus. They're They're pushing in all these directions to tr- make sure that all the front of the Russian military is pinned down to not reinforce, you know, and get a break so that these places that they're really trying to break through and, you know, supposedly cut off the Crimean land bridge so they can't get more support. I mean, they're literally pushing and having even boat and artillery battles in the most flooded region downstream from the Kakovka Dam just to keep the Russians on the other side of the Dnieper busy. Obviously, they're not going to be able to mount any kind of tank or armored vehicle offensive over that flooded region just yet but they're even pushing in the woods of the luhansk region which we know is no viable region for a actual offensive but they know that there are troops there positioned along the front line so they're gonna try to keep them tied down with the artillery and with the you know even just the small arms that they've been given from the west so it's uh it's really going all along the front line but like you said hundreds of these western tanks destroyed the supposed wonder weapons that they were have not been doing their job uh, many have said you know these are designed for desert warfare as opposed to you know the T90 being for this type of warfare a much superior tank you know i've heard this from a number of military analysts but in general, it just seems that the the offensive is going to end with some kind of... Like, we may still see certain Ukrainian figures claim there never was an offensive, and that these were all just, you know, probing attempts. You know, we're ne- the offensive was never going to start till we get F-16s or whatever the hell, you know, comes next. So, yeah, it's definitely 
it's it's and it's not coming without you know some new words from the uh, from the political side of things as far as new territory, demilitarized zones, sanitary zones, and. You know, we're even hearing about uh, from other people. We're hearing, you know, that we need to push all the way to Ilvov, you know, <laughs> certain things. So we're seeing, you know, and of course Lukashenko has been inquiring in onto all of this. So, and and the the sanitary zone stuff ultimately stems from we we just saw some new video released from that Belgorod incursion by the you know supposed Russian Democratic or like Russian People's Forces or whatever the hell they call themselves, and. That is one of the reasons why the, you know, regions like Kharkov and Sumy have been cited as why we need to immediately establish a sanitary zone, which, you know, I, I, I'm not quite sure exactly what that means as far as it seems to be a more diplomatic way of, you know, saying that area needs to be demilitarized as opposed to going in and annexing it. But yeah, I think um, we're seeing the slowly but surely the next stage of diplomacy play out in the region here. Yeah, I think uh, just noticing the statements of the governor of the Kyrgyzstan region, we've mentioned him in previous episodes of Vladimir Saldo at the moment, he's he is stating that some sort of new arrangement needs to be set up where Kherson, Zaporozhye, uh, Donba- um, Donetsk, Lugansk, these three new oblasts need to be recognized as a certain special regions of the Russian Federation, similar to how Chechnya, Chuvashia, um, Tatarstan, etc. have their own sort of special status in the in the formal formal arrangement of the Russian Federation, which allows them to, I suppose, govern in a very specific way and also adjust their local laws to accommodate for sort of regional differences, which I suppose the main difference in, in a region such as Kyrgyzstan under the leadership of Saldo was, would be the fact that it is technically adjacent to a foreign hostile enemy. So in fact, it is uh, Kyrgyzstan is located in a demilitarized zone, which means, I mean, naturally speaking, the implications are quite negative. Like, who would want to invest in a region that's essentially uh, potentially going to be a battlefield in the future if the peace is established? So, Kherson essentially is the future doesn't look bright if some sort of peace treaty is arranged, or uh, even if Kherson turns into some sort of partial demilitarized zone. So, who wants to live, invest, build, or even uh, construct a business in a in a you know area which will be subject to potential? foreign influence in the future like it is it is a kind of a bad prospect so in fact he is asking for the russian federation to accommodate for this and in an interview with uh, ria tv a big russian journalist uh, media site he does say that kerson is receiving funding from nearby regions and oblasts at the moment but this funding needs to be streamlined and so he's looking for ways of uh, potentially you know consolidating that under his leadership so perhaps he's looking for more power um my guess is one either he wants to actually double dip and get you know actually control where the funding is going schools hospitals um you know police stations whatever the infrastructure you know is required maybe he wants to invest in different businesses in the region not sure or two he wants to he actually knows that the region will be strife and ripe with corruption once all this russian federation money comes in in order to rebuild kerosene in order to i suppose build it up He's kind of maybe he's afraid, or maybe he wants to participate in the corruption himself. It's not quite sure. Vladimir Salda isn't exactly the clearest and the widest angel. There's not a white dove figure in the uh, Kherson in this sort of collage of uh, Ukrainian adjacent states. Because mind you, he was pro-Ukrainian until uh, I believe even uh, even after 2014. So Vladimir Salda, in fact, has only changed tunes quite recently. It's not like he's been pro-Russian, uh, you know going back even pre-2014, unlike, you know, some political oppositions of his who we spoke about on some of the 8th hour episodes in the Kyrgyzstan region. So 
very interesting from him. And also the fact that uh, the Novokhovka Dam was destroyed, and in fact, uh, there's essentially a new border being created through the Dnieper River. So the Kherson region is, in fact, a perfect place for a demilitarized zone, or at least for this uh, buffer area between both Ukraine and the Russian Federation. It's just a matter of how Russia will, in fact, invest in the Kherson region. Will it build it up or will it remain abandoned? Not just by locals who will probably move to mainland Russian Federation once they receive their visas, citizenships, etc. Or will Russia actually invest in the region? I think it's quite an, quite an open book. But yeah, as you mentioned, Conrad, I think it's super curious that both the governors of Bryansk and Belgorod, both adjacent to the Kharkov Oblast, are saying that they will. They're looking for Russia to actually enter into Kharkov and take take over the whole Kharkov Oblast because that will that's the only way that peace can be achieved to prevent all these various terrorists from crossing the border and harassing uh, the citizens of their particular regions. So in fact, they're pushing the local the local governors, the local politicians are actually asking the Kremlin to enforce more military action in the Ukraine. They're actually asking for an escalation rather than a diminishing in some sort of peace. In fact, people who want peace are probably sitting in the Kremlin. Meanwhile, the ones who are locally there, who locally see the degeneracy caused by Ukraine, who are actually affected by the conflict on the ground, actually want Ukraine to be punished and want Ukraine to be pushed back. Uh, so that seems to be the dichotomy here. Yeah, I mean, just to see what actually Vladimir Putin said at a meeting with military correspondents, he said, if the shelling of Russian territory continues, Moscow will have to consider creating a sanitary zone in Ukraine so they can't, and I quote, they cannot get us. He's talking about bordering the Bryansk and Belgorod regions. He says, the goals and objectives of the special operation change in accordance with the current situation, but in general, they are of a fundamental nature. Russia is gradually and methodically engaged in the demilitarization of Ukraine. The Ukrainian defense industry will soon completely cease to exist. Uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive is large-scale, using strategic reserves. It began on June 4th. It continues right now. The enemy had no successes in any of the sectors. Now there is an attack on U- attack of Ukraine in four directions. Ukrainian losses and personnel during the counteroffensive are approaching catastrophic. So, obviously they see... We've talked about, again, there being eventually a Russian push, and we saw a few brief pushes, you know, before the fall of Bakhmut in the Zaporozhye direction, just establishing some more footholds. But it seems that... From that perspective of demilitarization, if the Russians feel that they've adequately demilitarized Ukraine after, you know, expending them in this latest counteroffensive, we'll definitely see how diplomatic or how militarily they're intent on resolving, you know, this this obvious crisis of sanitary zones and incursions and whatnot. But uh, he mentions the goals and objectives of the special operation change in accordance with the current situation. And I think that really relates to, we now have seen, obviously, nuclear weapons moved into Belarus, and Lukashenko talking about how he thinks the conflict is going to end soon and talking this big diplomatic game. Well, it's understood that, you know, and I believe the guys on Russians with Attitude talk about this a bit, that basically the plan at the beginning of the SMO was for some kind of regime change and a, you know, a, a big compromise, but long story short, you know, Lukashenko wasn't capable, after Boris Johnson and the negotiations all fell through, Lukashenko wasn't willing to necessarily immediately engage in a Belarus front as he didn't feel secure enough in his, I guess, grasp or protection from Poles or from color revolutions. So now that's part now, it seems that the Russians have uh, diplomatically and strategically secured him in that regard with this move of these nuclear weapons. If you have thoughts on that, Dimitri. Yeah, I think it's a 
it's a two-way street. So essentially, it prevents it. Essentially, assists Lukashenko in that he knows that no more there won't be any more color revolutions in Belarus. So it does aid him in that regard because we do remember the pre-COVID revolts in Belarus were quite severe. In fact, uh, you know, and not just the, from the side of the actual people revolting, causing and promoting degenerate liberal values. Anti, they were strictly and openly anti-Orthodox in their outlook there. In fact, uh, most of them were unionists, atheists, uh, alphabet community supporters, etc. So they weren't essentially Orthodox, but even the police brutality, which some of Lukashenko's police actually had to conduct in order to shut this protest down was quite severe. So in fact, the, the footage was quite real. So the, the protest was shut down in very severe fashion. And I don't think Lukashenko wants to agitate the Belarusian people anymore, or at least wants them to be agitated. So in fact, he's happy for Russian, uh, for this Russian solidarity to come tr- to come through. And I would also say the closening of Russian Belarusian uh, relations at the moment also benefit Russia in that they, you know, by planting these military uh, you know, military installations on Belarusian soil, also of course giving them nuclear missiles prevents Lukashenko from at any point changing his mind and actually joining, becoming like a semi-quasi Baltic state, or even changing his mind. Because imagine the incentives. You probably have entire uh, entire agencies dedicated to working out how to get Belarus to essentially turn into this post-Soviet anti-Russian state. How can we bribe these? Internal Belarusian ministers who are only getting paid a hundred thousand USD a year in salary, right? So their salaries are not very high. So how how best can you bribe a Belarusian minister or you know minister of police or Belarusian general who's only getting paid maybe one hundred and fifty grand? You could potentially bribe him with like five million American dollars, and that's already you know twenty years worth of salary for him, if not more, right? So thinking about it, in order to prevent all this bribery, in order in order to prevent Belarus from being influenced by Western powers, you can potentially, from the Russian perspective, completely conjoin it with yourself with yourself by planting these military installations there essentially what the u.s has done to japan in order to prevent any any sort of uh in order to prevent this belarus from running away and joining any western uh western influenced powers especially if something happens to lukashenko you have to think there is there there is a contingency plan if lukashenko's successes don't follow through with this pro-russian position uh there needs to be something in place for that so i think it's a very smart move from the russian federation but generally speaking from an Orthodox Christian perspective, like me and Yushia, Belarus should be, of course, conjoined to Russia, and they should cooperate because it is one culture, it is one civilization. So we don't, in fact, oppose oppose these um, sort of tactical political considerations from Russia and Belarus alike. I think generally there's a very materialistic view of it, and then of course there's the spiritual angle because you know Belarus is is a member of the Russian Orthodox Church in terms of its its diocese, the priest there, and in fact, it is one one country with Russia, culturally speaking, and it, you know, they should be united. So um, I think all these things are for the best, generally, and hopefully with Ukraine, a similar outcome will be, you know, will occur soon. I, I think what's interesting, I'm not sure if you heard, Conrad, but there was some news regarding uh, Adam Dilimhanov, leader of the Chechen commanders in Ukraine, apparently getting harmed, similar to how Bud- there's rumors about Budanov, the SBU spy chief in Ukraine, actually getting completely taken out and he's being rushed to German hospital, but apparently Ukrainians are claiming he's completely fine. So there's essentially on one side, a Russian Chechen commander gets apparently wounded in battle. At least this is you know news from a few days ago. The Russians are disputing it, but Peskov is saying, so the, you know, the chief of staff for Russian media for the presidency of Putin, he's saying that, look, we're actually following the news very closely. We're not sure what's happening with Adam Delimhanov. This is the same guy we mentioned on the previous episode who had a, who had a bit of a spiff with Prigozhin and Dmitry Utkin, where he just essentially 
attacked Prigozhin and said, look, you guys need to support Shoigu and the Russian Ministry of Defense. No more complaining, Prigozhin. And Dmitry Yutkin called him out. So this is that same guy who we spoke about last week, apparently was wounded. You know, so both sides are having these wounded commanders and both sides are not exactly confirming whether or not these commanders are alive. So there is a, a level of, uh, I guess, maybe a multiple level of PSYOP here. There's various layers going on here in the in the conflicts. But have you heard anything about Budanov, Conrad? Yeah, I mean, I've heard he's basically done. I've heard Zeluzhny is not dead, but also just uh, no longer capable of participating as the leader of the Ukrainian military. So they're never going to admit this, obviously. I don't, I mean, it's probably for the best, honestly, for them that now there's the entire control apparatus is by shadow figures that aren't known to the people outside. And they can just kind of say that these other guys that are either wounded or dead or whatever are just still somehow in control and are just so focused on work they now just can't talk to the media but yeah i mean that leads us to obviously the idea of you know possible what's coming with regime change but before we say that i wanted to say as well the rwa guys had talked about this that the beginning of the operation was in many ways it's pretty clear that the kazakhstan operation in january of 2022 was they tried they wanted to do a version of that in ukraine but for a various number of reasons, like the arrest and just dissolution of, you know, the Medvedchuk kind of cabal within Ukraine and then, you know, the Boris Johnson interference and all of that, it just wasn't wasn't possible. But when, when, when you talk about, uh, like, Budanov and Zeluzhny and the factionalism within Ukraine and regime change, we're, I think we're really starting to see some of the uh, narrative off-ramps, I guess you could say, from the mainstream media in the West about putting some blame on the actual Ukrainians themselves to tone down Western support. We're seeing it's in the Wall Street Journal, it's in the New York Times, that apparently the Ukrainians themselves blew up the Nord Stream pipelines. And the United States, you know, uh, had been warning the Ukrainians not to touch the Nord Stream pipelines, but they did it anyway, which, you know, that seems like a pretty convenient thing for the U.S. to say now that the Ukrainians are losing their counteroffensive and everyone knows that the U.S. blew up the Nord Stream pipelines. Yeah, I think there's no question that the United States and the powers that be, the globalists, the EU, NATO, they're all looking at essential... They have many options on the table, so it's essentially a multiple choice. At the moment, the priority is clearly mm-hmm. to defend Ukraine, to train it up, but there is also a scapegoat or an exit plan, right? So uh, the exit plan, whether or not it'll be executed, whether or not Zelensky will literally physically be executed uh, as their, as Ukraine leaves the conflict or half of it goes towards Russia or this sort of demilitarization, denazification takes place, which, which makes sense because think of all these Azov Battalion people with mercenaries coming from the United States and all these uh, t- uh, typically, how, how do we even describe it, Aryan countries which are joining and fighting for this uh, member of the Cabal Zelensky, right, and Kolomoisky, etc. These these people, these mercenaries, they will be discarded like like trash at the end of the day, right? So when, when a peace is established, when the West actually surrenders, all these people who are, uh, I suppose have been fooled into supporting this um, these neo-Nazi battalions who have joined out of complete pathos and and passion and uh, emotion, essentially saying that, well, Ukraine needs to be supported because of the white race, because of, you know, because it's uh, Russia's the, this evil thing, and, like, we're going to build a, a white state in Ukraine. All these delusional people are going, to abandon, are going to be abandoned by the powers that be in the end, which I think this has been coming for a long time now. So, in fact, I don't necessarily feel sorry for them. It's... Uh, all, all, like the Azov Battalion, all of these various battalions, the like uh, Idar, even for example, like they've all they've all clearly stated they support Zelensky. They even they're even partially Zionist, but they don't understand that at the end of the day, they're the ones who are going to be left to face Russian trials, Russian long long sentences under you know 
in Russian prison and, you know, Putin's recent crackdown on extremism, you can say, anti-Islamic rhetoric in Russia as well, kind of points to that as well. So Russia's really clamping down on any sort of extremist uh, extremist rhetoric, even from its own citizens. How do they think they'll cope under Russian rule, which, you know, the West will abandon them to? And frankly, the West, like we all know, the, the West uses... The West uses right-wing organizations all the time in order to, you know, solicit support for its own regime. Like, uh, you know, there's federal agents, essentially, in all these organizations. And the, the ones in Ukraine are no different. In fact, uh, they're probably much easier to control when you send over funding and just uh, it's probably directly funded by, by money as opposed to ideology. M- maybe even uh, a lot easier to infiltrate, as we've seen. Well, I think as well, you have to realize it's part of why, look, I think everyone's getting a little sick of this perpetual, like, you know, obviously it's bizarre that the West, you know, suddenly just is okay with iron crosses and swastikas. But look, it, as far as the current situation and as far as the people that are actually around the world supporting Russia and the Russian Federation and the people of the Donbass, the whole like Nazi versus, you know, fascist thing isn't exactly the most powerful device. But the reason they keep that open all the time is that they know, look, Ukraine went from being, you know, what well, you could say at least a plurality state that had a you know pro-russian bent within you know a few years a decade or so completely like a new nation was born like complete ethnogenesis like there is a total you know this this complete propping up of ukrainian identity and but because of that 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 can it's not as deep as something else right that can be shifted and if the ukrainian people are truly become fatigued with what's going on and finally start to realize the west and zelensky are just as much if not more to blame than the russians i could see a lot of those people kind of you know there might be some cognitive dissonance involved but almost shifting pretty quickly and being you know what no it was these eu fascists you know these nazi they've propped up these nazis and you know, it, you know we have to return to like normalcy and they might never be pro russian but they'll just be like above it all and they'll call out that the other side too and so the Russians are always keeping that narrative door open because they know they have to do that if they're actually going to successfully occupy the territories they have now, let alone, you know, everything west of the, everything east of the Dnieper. I mean, uh, of course, we're not going to say that Russia won't take very harsh measures if it, say, does in the end win in the Ukrainian war and it has to sort of administer these in the entirety of Ukraine, the territory. We we all know what happened when Stalin essentially won World War Two and took over the regions of you know, took back Sevastopol, took back Crimea, all the Crimean Tatars, the majority of which sided with Nazi Germany, surprisingly, were, a lot of them were deported and forcefully transported, which is why when people speak about the deportation of the Crimean Tatars, they're missing the fact that almost three quarters of them sided with the Third Reich as soon as Barbarossa began. So, in fact, and a lot of the crimes against the local Russian citizens of Sevastopol, of Crimea, of the of the inner regions, at least a lot, a lot of the Soviet villages, Russian villages, essentially white, native Russians who moved into Crimea during the 1700s, these uh, Crimean Tatars essentially, at least those radicals and extremists amongst their ranks, began massacring a lot of them. There was rape, pillage, villages were burnt. And the Soviet Union, even during Brezhnev's years, uh, there was a vote passed. You know, Brezhnev was uh, essentially bringing in all these um, repressed elements from the Soviet society, taking people out of prisons, essentially claiming that, well, Stalin went a bit too far. There was even a, a vote in the Soviet Union, should we rehabilitate the Crimean Tatars? And I think I believe the majority voted against it because the Crimean Tatars essentially mostly sided with Nazi Germany. So, in fact, you may see similar sort of um, anti-neo-Nazi, anti-Banderite, I think would be more accurate, anti-Bandera actions from Russia in the in the in Ukraine, especially you know, it'll take it'll obviously take a more legal form than what Stalin and the Soviet government was were using against the Crimean Tatars, essentially through executive action, just shipping them out of Crimea and uh, you know essentially uh, 
dispersing them along the Soviet Union or sending a lot of them to gulags, etc. It's pretty harsh. But what we're going to see in Ukraine will probably take a similar, will be very similar to that, I think. What's also interesting is just the fact that uh, this Bandera ideology, it's not even the classical neo-Nazi Aryanism we saw during the during the Second World War. In fact, it's taking its own blasphemous sacrilegious colors. In fact, uh, we saw the Upper Key of Caves Cathedral in Kiev, of course, captured by the schismatic church created by Zelensky and his ilk Poroshenko. They were actually they for the first time in three hundred years they served a moleben, which is a, a prayer for a deceased person. They served a liturgical service for uh, Mazepa, and uh, Get Hetman Mazepa was essentially one of the leaders who rose up sided with the Polish, sided with the Swedish against the Russian, the young Russian Empire, against Peter the Great. And he broke at least two oaths, which he swore on the cross. So he kissed the gospel. He was a Russian, essentially he was a Russian leader in the Russian military, a, a general, you can say. He was the right-hand man of Peter the Great. And Peter the Great had everybody swear these oaths to protect Russia and the integrity of the Russian Tsardom. And he's, he kissed the gospel, he kissed the cross, he promised that he won't ever betray Peter nor the Russian Orthodox Church, and he'll always defend Russian Orthodox people. And then he sided with the Swedish and the Polish and essentially forced, almost uh, started this Ukrainian uprising in the 1700s. And now the Ukrainian church is praying for him. This man was anathematized, essentially disconnected from the church. He's a cursed figure in Russian history from the early 1700s. He's one of the one of the dark marks on Russian history. In fact, he's uh, considered to be the progenitor of the Ukrainian uh, ethnos. You know, they, they see him as a national hero. But in fact, this this person is... You know, to this day, some churches in Russia actually mention him in the list of anathema during the triumph of orthodoxy. He's like Leo Tolstoy, one of these, and Vladimir Lenin, one of these like cursed people who are definitely in hell. Like they're, they're proclaimed to be disconnected from the church. And now Ukrainians are praying for him. So this, but their ideology, in fact, is so destructive that they're bringing up these images of these cursed figures from history in order to, I mean, I feel sorry for anybody actually attending these services and praying for them in a holy place like Kiev Church Lava or any church in the Ukraine. It's incredibly blasphemous. And, you know, uh, the conclusions are probably quite dire for Ukraine if they continue these sort of actions on a cultural level, you know, keeps promoting them. It's pretty, uh, pretty low. It is. And like you said, there has seemed to be a slight downturn in the overt persecutions in the church. We may bring that up a little bit when we talk about what's going on in Cyprus with the recognition of the schismatics there. But we've been talking about that for a while. Let's see if anything else to say about Russia, Ukraine. There's still a lot of stuff going on in Serbia, Kosovo, as well as what seems to even be raids on villages actually within Serbia itself, like mainland, like recognized Serbia proper by Muslim extremists raiding even certain Serbian villages and vandalizing churches and whatnot, which, I mean, this just kind of goes to show that some of this Kosovar Albanian nationalism and stuff has really gotten out of control. Like, it's why someone like Albin Kurti, you know, the head of Kosovo, is felt emboldened to completely reject, like, the notion of Serb municipalities to the point where he's now sanctioned, his government is now sanctioned by the United States. Yeah, that's right. It doesn't seem like diversity is really working out for the former Yugoslavia, at least from the Islamic Orthodox Corporation angle. At least, well, at least we don't see it really in in the Albanian Serbian or Serbian adjacent areas, especially Kosovo. It does seem like whatever, and you know, you could say the foreign powers are causing this. This is a unipolarity, but I think it really does show that if there are two groups and they're in a constant opposition, in fact, uh, unless you have a one strong force which overridingly controls the whole state, for example, like in in Russia, you have an Orthodox Christian majority, which keeps, uh, I guess, keeps the members of the Russian 
Federation, who are Muslim, as well as Jewish, Buddhist, etc., all these various minority groups, including various schismatics, all believers, it keeps them in line. In fact, in, in the Albanian-Serbian conflict in Kosovo, after all the Albanians were moved in, this, in fact, was shifted, and now it's almost, I believe it's almost an equivalent amount of people on either side, and this uh, this tension, it's, uh, it's not really resolvable, I guess, on a local political level, which the Kosovo, you know, the Kosovo situation has shown. So uh, the fact that we're seeing more crimes on a, a locally in that region really doesn't surprise me. I think it uh, really speaks speaks ill of NATO, the fact that they, they continue to support this uh, agitation against the Orthodox Christian people there. Uh, on the positive end, I suppose uh, there have there have been um, no negative news about the Serbians being abused in Bosnia. So the Respublika Srpska in the, in the, on the Bosnian end, in fact, is perhaps the most peaceful area, or at least the Serbs there are in fact enjoying themselves as opposed to those Serbs involved in any Albanian Kosovo-related matters, it, it's not looking too good. In fact, the entire um, former Yugoslavian region, that Upper Balkans region, is in fact, I think, a fire pit. It's it's already ripe for some sort of um, you know foreign intervention or this something bad is probably def- definitely going to happen, especially with a shaky S- Serbian political situation with the president, you know, mentioning his resignation. Right? I think that's there may may be some negative outcomes to that. Well, and in Kosovo, they've supposedly banned, you know, Serbian license plates, which um, there's people that live in, quote unquote, Kosovo that have Serbian license plates, as you know, we've discussed that whole ordeal on past episodes, and it got resolved where the people were allowed to keep their license plates. So the Kosovars are, as usual, you know, stepping things up. And it just seems that, I don't know, they feel emboldened by, I guess, the actual Albanians themselves to do this, because like you said, the US has completely condemned what Kurti is doing. The EU has issued sanctions packages. I mean, this is, and now, I mean, Serbia has, according to Kosovo, kidnapped three police officers, whereas Serbia claims the police officers were traipsing around in Serbia with military gear and were then arrested, which I've seen the video. Only one side has presented video so far, and it was the Serbs. So I'm, uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and side with, uh, what, with what I've seen there. It didn't seem, I wasn't seeing it as, it wasn't in Kosovo, there was a whole lot of Serbian activity going on. But, but it does seem that the, you know, the the Kosovo Albanians have pushed it a little bit too far. And I think even Albania, like the authorities of Albania itself, weren't even happy with what they were doing. Maybe this is maybe this is a positive angle. Perhaps this conflict, I mean, uh, as bloody and as, and as awkward as it may be, these various skirmishes between shopkeepers, police officers, uh, rebels on both sides, uh, rebels in terms of people who don't listen to the law, obviously local. Uh, Kosovo law is not perfect anyway, so the people who break the law and on either side of the conflict, perhaps maybe this slowing down Serbia's ascension into the EU and perhaps even into NATO itself, right? We, we don't we don't know what, exa- what exactly the end goals are of the Serbian bureaucracy, the political bureaucracy ruling the country. Clearly, the Orthodox population doesn't want any sort of alphabetization of the Serbian nation, but nevertheless, the, the politicians are the ones moving the moving the actual handles of the clock here. So it's just a matter of, you know, maybe this is somewhat providential, the fact that this conflict is still ongoing and it prevents Serbia from entering into this into this liberal paradigm, this liberal world world order. So, in fact, maybe it's slowing down enough for uh, for some sort of break when multipolarity does finally begin, when the U.S. I guess economically partially collapses and Serbia is kind of free to act on its uh, in this territory. Perhaps maybe the delay just needs to happen until then, or maybe until Russia wins in Ukraine, then Russia can somewhat assist the Serbian people. But at the moment, they kind of have their hands tied. I'm not too sure. There's various, of course. Uh, speculations on this issue so but it does seem like serbia's uh, ascension to the eu i think will be a major 
a major turning point. Because look, at the moment, Kosovo and Serbia are both appealing to Brussels in order to resolve the conflict. So they're already treating uh, each other as these fellow members of the United uh, United European Union. So it's it, yeah, it's quite negative. No one's appealing to Russia to resolve the issue. They're appealing to Brussels and Belgium, which is even further away. Alan, you mentioned the uh, Bosnia, Republika Srpska and everything. And it, you know, further and further, I mean, Dodik has issued a new law to stop OHR, which is the like high authority of Bosnia, which is kind of the EU NATO representative that kind of it's kind of like how I don't know I grew up in a former you know in the British overseas territory where there's the local government that does all their stuff like you know Bosnia has like a prime minister and they've got all that stuff but then there's like you know there's a there's a white man that comes in from, from that's how it works you know and the, that comes in and you know is still like the real representative of what the real powers that be and reports back to the to the cabal back in Brussels or the UK, and you know Dodik has you know said that they no longer need those decisions shouldn't be you know proliferated around Serbska and effectively I guess aren't going to be enforced. So he's really just moving towards both not recognizing the Muslim you know government in Sarajevo as well as the you know the the NATO EU authority that also you know exercise is is like you know is parenting that meme country attempting to bring it into into adulthood and just kind of on a on a side issue i i did notice a very funny image so um reading news about the uh ukrainian spy chief budanov is essentially uh you you notice the the, the actual uh, uh portrait he has in the background of his office it's essentially an owl sitting on a sword and the sword is piercing russia now you see this image in 1980 soviet cartoons where uh, you have the the cartoon um ivan sadevich and kashebis mirkna which essentially is a cartoon about a uh, Ivan the Prince and how he went, goes on to slay this uh, immortal undead undead uh, warlock named Koshe the Immortal. And essentially, in Koshe the Immortal's castle, there's this owl which sits on a sword as well. It's a very Bohemian Grove type, type imagery. We see this with, of course, Drake's albums as well, where there's an owl. It's a very Illuminati-esque symbology. So I'm very interested, just kind of on an esoteric note, uh, why the Ukrainians, uh, why their uh, federal agency, the spy agency, essentially the equivalent of the KGB, which used to persecute Orthodox Christians, the NKVD, this uh, progenitor, why it's using this owl symbol, at least sitting on a sword, is essentially equivalent to what was shown in the Soviet cartoons um, based on these old ancient Russian fairy tales about immortal undead warlocks, etc. So very esoteric and interesting, uh, just something I noticed in the Budanov story. So again, Ukraine, very uh, sort of very dark place at the moment, ruled by very uh, dark and evil people. So it's not really surprising that they use these bohemian images. You know, there's Masonic imagery all over some of these uh, some of these certain places, you know, places like Astana, you know, in Kazakhstan, places I'm sure I believe in Kosovo, with all the NATO EU, there's a lot of there's been a lot of Masonic symbolism spotted as well. But yeah, obviously we're watching Serbia, Kosovo, almost as you know, kind of the little brother, the 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 cold or little brother of the Ukraine conflict. In many ways, we're going to be watching it closely. But as far as the rest of the world goes, we're seeing France want to join BRICS, which is you know we we've seen a few moves in the past of Macron wanting to you know he's kind of realized that America doesn't have the EU and Europe's best interest at heart, and he says you know he wants to have a French led you know, technocratic, liberal, you know, liberal fascist EU that, you know, is uh, diverse and whatnot that is against America and stands on its own and I guess has relations with China. 
And, you know, the Global Times wrote and China has hinted that they said that France joining BRICS would be bold and innovative. And, you know, they were asking the head of South Africa for an invitation to the summit. But it seems that Russia has no interest in allowing that to happen. And that would obviously be because France is very actively funding the war effort in Ukraine and directly killing Russian civilians. But it's it's an interesting move, of course. It's clear that Macron no longer cares at all. He feels that he has a strong enough grip over France that he can just very openly signal against the US, the UK. He, I mean, out of the UK is left. It's kind of, there's, and Germany has been, Germany's now in an official recession and the Nord Stream pipeline destroyed. He's kind of preparing for this battle between France and Italy for control of the European Union. And while France is ultimately a more powerful and relevant economic bloc than Italy, it seems that Maloney has a lot more actual political capital in the rest of the EU, surprisingly enough, with right-wing government in Sweden, right-wing government in Hungary, you know, right-wing governments rising in places like Spain, even, you know, the European coalition in Germany is still even becoming, you know, more reactionary just based on the horrible governance of the Greens. So in general, it seems that Maloney is actually poised to win. And Maloney hasn't been, I mean, sure, if I, from a European, if I was in Italy, I'd rather have her, you know, she's deporting illegals, she's, you know, stopping the migrant crisis, she's against sodomy and the pride stuff, but she's just as gung-ho about supporting Ukraine as Macron is. So, you know, it'll be an interesting power struggle to watch, and it seems actually, maybe, what if Maloney ends up subsiding more with the Americans than they end up supporting someone more quote-unquote right-wing because they see Macron as actually more of an independent player? You know, it's it, it shows you politics is, is a bit deeper than the whole, than just the political spectrum on things but i don't know maybe maybe le pen wins in france somehow or a right-wing person and then france joins BRICS, and we really see and look i'll say this i'd like years ago i made a map so like about if world war three breaks out and every country literally is forced to pick a side i had france possibly you know as a as one of the first european countries to you know side against nato or leave nato or you know lead to the dissolution of nato so it's not i don't think it's impossible france has always the right in france especially has always been more russophilic than others france definitely has a bit of a russophilic flavor even going back to the reign of alexander the third who actually formally solidified a peace between france and russia that's uh notwithstanding the crimean war even the napoleonic wars so the 19th century is actually very interesting in fact of course russia borrowed money for investments from france as well in order to boost its economic growth in the early 20th century as well during Tsar nicholas ii's reign and france of course supported russia in world war one against the prussian rising you know wilhelm's Prussian Germany, essentially. So there is this uh, idea, at least, that you know potentially France and Russia could have this strategic alliance. This is despite, despite the fact that France, I guess, at its inception, ontologically, it is a liberal, Masonic, Republican country. But even uh, Charles de Gaulle wasn't necessarily anti-Russian in his in his policies. In fact, he was kind of positioning France as a certain uh, state, which is a bit on the side, not really under the influence of America. In fact, an independent nuclear, proper nuclear power, which holds seat on the Security Council of the UN. So France is like a, I wouldn't call it the sick man of Europe, but it's definitely like an uh, an auxiliary country in Europe in order that it's never central, it's never central, it's never primal, but it's never like the primal sort of country. When you think about the European Union, you always think about Germany first, France second. So France would always, and even, yeah, I think it would prefer to even see itself on the side. And Macron today, 
uh, in a sort of De Gaullean politics. He is, I think, betting on multiple horses here. So he's essentially almost like at a casino and he's playing blackjack and Texas Hold'em and poker on the side, uh, various betting on various tables. So he's like, oh, please, could you guys invite me to the BRICS summit? At the same time, he's going to Armenia trying to... Uh, juggle that piece he's uh sending erdogan congratulations he's at the same time uh supporting zelensky and ukraine as well visiting kiev so he's doing various various things here he's playing on various fronts and of course his relationship with visiting ping he's trying to of course improve it and saying that france and china should have a strategic partnership and moving forward they should be strong economic allies it's just a bizarre bizarre mix right of takes and then macron's definitely looking out for france in terms of at least, uh, you know, he's a weird guy himself, but I'm, I'm thinking perhaps he does have some good faith consideration for the future of the French people in terms of their autonomy and how they can view themselves in this future multipolar world. So France should not die for Europe. Europe when, when the EU falls apart, France should actually have, I think, preferably for the French people, its own independent state with its own nuclear-powered uh, economy, nuclear-powered uh, infrastructure, and that it can actually go forward in this multipolar world and actually have a say on things and not be relegated to the sidelines. I think that's what he's hedging on here. Um, but again, it's also a matter of who wins in the end. Will it be the NATO unipolar world world hegemony? Will they keep increasing the debt ceiling? Will Russia be completely uh, you know, debilitated, destroyed, and enter into a civil war after they lose in Ukraine? Or will, a hege- will this new uh, multipolar reality emerge in which France will need to take part in as a sort of independent actor, which I think he's hedging on both scenarios playing out. Either way, France benefits, according to Macron's policies here. Well, and it's also, I mean, they're also going to have to deal with the fact that they also have Muslims, you know, stabbing children on a playground, you know, in their cities and whatnot, which is going to be, you know, that's the problem. You know, maybe if they, maybe a French version of Maloney would, you know, do all the kicking out of all the Muslims, but also not be a NATO you know, Ukraine chill, you know, that's kind of what we're hoping for that will eventually exist, which we, you know, we have Viktor Orban, but, you know, Hungary is a whole lot less relevant than France, Italy, Germany, even Spain. So we're going to obviously, like, you know, France, you know, maybe if they, maybe if Macron quickly decides to change, is the first one to turn his back on Zelensky, maybe then Russia will let him into BRICS, you know, maybe get him a, give him a pass. But I mean, BRICS is, I mean, it seems that, you know, South Africa, they're doing all sorts of diplomacy. I mean, they, uh, they're they really kind of flexing their muscles that they seem to realize that BRICS is becoming this kind of international institution. But we, we've seen NATO trying to flex itself, and Japan, uh, France is also kind of signaling, again, towards the BRICS direction. Uh, Stoltenberg, NATO wanted to start a Japan you know, kind of field office for NATO, for kind of really shifting NATO's focus to the Pacific and China, and France vetoed that. So France is very much, you know, that was definitely Macron signaling towards, you know, his his wannabe new buddy Xi Jinping, that, yeah, man, see, I'm I'm about this BRICS thing, I'm about this multipolarity thing, I'm not... I'm not with these... I'm not with them boys, man, like, you know, I'm, I'm, one, of, I'm one of you guys. So, you know, we'll see how, how you know... China maybe seems more convinced right now than Russia, but, you know, we'll see what the rest of the people say. And if it's brought up at, you know, the summit's coming up. Yeah, that's right. Summit's coming up and, you know, hopefully Macron does get invited. In fact, you know, this could all be a big play for popularity. I have heard certain Russian comment 
commentators and journalists claim that Omicron wants us to be at the center of things in order to support uh, any sort of re-election or future in his political game. So him actually asking to be on the BRICS committee is not actually a pro-France state. It's just a personal uh, political aspiration to be on the covers of newspapers. He's always uh, primarily interested in, you know, being on the front cover, being in front. He's not very, uh, he's not very subtle about it, very selfish, in fact. So, you know, it could be that. But there's uh, other considerations, I think, around the world, given the uh, recent veto for the NATO office in Japan. Uh, so pretty outstanding news, I think, given the fact that Japan already has several, I mean, not several, it is probably has probably the largest amount of military bases of the United States in the Pacific Ocean, you know, despite, I mean, not mentioning American territories such as Hawaii, but Japan definitely is the most uh, American-dominated uh, state in Asia, I would say, probably second only to Taiwan, if that. Well, like I just said, that was... France's veto of that office was obviously, you know, they're showing China, not obviously they're, they're trying to show China that they're uh, not all in on the NATO thing, just because they're supporting Ukraine in the war there doesn't mean that they're not, not on board maybe with this multipolarity stuff. So it's going to be really interesting to watch and to see if, because NATO has said like they published the whole thing, you know, Russia's our number one threat and China is... You know, we're watching China rise. You know, the U.S. State Department said China's our number one threat. We're, you know, assisting our NATO allies and, you know, our allies in Ukraine against Russia. So, you know, the U.S. State Department and the NATO doctrine kind of go hand in hand there. But we are definitely seeing, you know, certain levels of NATO fatigue, France being one of the earliest ones to kind of fall off there. And we're having to see, I mean, it's not just the new office in Japan, it's the fact that you know some of these countries are running out of ammunition to send to ukraine so are having to recruit japan south korea these other places that obviously aren't in nato to send ukraine more ammunition because they're running out there's talks of ukraine buying like 30 israeli tanks or something like that which you know who knows if, if israel wants to really go all the way down that road we'll keep track on that but it seems that you know the packages are getting smaller and smaller from U.S. and it, we're obviously they they say they're going to stay with Ukraine to the end, but we, we've seen the narrative off ramps. So we'll, we're going to have to see how long that lasts. But unless you have anything else to say, kind of about the the BRICS you know world, I want to talk about uh, what's going on in Cyprus. I think the situation. Uh, honestly happening in Cyprus now is very peculiar, at least on the ecclesiological front. And again, um, could it be agitated by Erdogan's sudden, you know, surprise visit, at least uh, to northern Cyprus after he visited Azerbaijan Baku with his new cabinet members, essentially, you know, proclaiming that uh, Turkey will still support all of Azerbaijan's policies, including their foreign political aspirations, and kind of solidifying that Turkic trust, as well as, you know, visiting northern Cyprus to kind of agree that, look, we, uh, the Turkish people still stand on the position that Northern Cyprus is Turkish. In fact, I think they, they're even, I think the majority of them, the, at least the nationalists within Turkey, do claim all of Cyprus as Turkish territory. Of course, the southern side is, according to them, still occupied by Greece. So, in fact, despite all the ecclesiological issues, there is also the political angle, I think, which uh, raises some eyebrows. So, Erdogan essentially, you know, again, kind of doing something which could agitate at least the Greek residents of of the mediterranean so i think this definitely will have some effect long term uh the you know we will we all recall a few years ago three years ago in 2020 when the mosque of Hagia sophia was i mean so the museum of Hagia sophia the former cathedral was transformed into a mosque again by erdogan's commission and now of course there are muslim prayers conducted within its walls 
this was, of course, an unprecedented act and you know a commitment by Erdogan to this new image of Turkey as uh, you know increasing its Islamic clout in the world, sort of its its comeback as this potential future caliphate for the Muslims, this center center of power as opposed to the countries in the Hejaz. I think that's the long term prospect. But Cyprus, yeah, it's looking quite tumultuous. There is definitely a certain split there, spiritually speaking, right? Well, and it's it's a good thing you bring up the whole Erdogan angle because you know we talked with David about. Have the site, and he's like, yeah, the Cyprus issue. You know, no one's going to talk about that because you know, both sides are playing, trying to play up their nationalist credentials because that was where the that was kind of where the lines were drawn with you know Sina Noan and you know which you know obviously political Islam has certain nationalist appeal to some, and obviously extreme and being anti political Islam has a lot of nationalist appeal to others and, and really hardcore Kemalists. So you know, it, obviously, but Sina Noan ended up you know, endorsing Erdogan in the end as the nationalist. So it shows you where the it, it, that it really went both ways, and besides, but despite that, though the whole Northern Cyprus issue is so contentious on the geopolitical stage that neither candidate, you know, wanted to rock the boat with, you know, the, just the other geopolitical entities that are involved there—the British, the U.S., NATO, the Greeks. You know, they, they that wasn't an issue that they were going to bring up. But what happens right after the election? Right after he's politically secure, he visits Northern Cyprus, saying, "Yep, I." I'm reaching to the outer, I'm visiting the outer regions of the empire and saying that, you know, maybe we will go further. And obviously you're right that that would cause some turmoil in Cyprus, especially among the bishops. You know, we know Metropolitan Leofitos has spoken explicitly about the fallout that will happen once certain political events occur in, in Turkey that we've seen that were, you know, narrowly averted and pushed back perhaps by a few years by this Erdogan victory. And part of that, of course, involves actually a retreat from northern Cyprus by by the troops there due to you know conflict with Russians and Ukraine and other things like that. So it, it's obviously interesting to see, but you know with when it comes to Cyprus, the ecclesial split obviously involves recognition of the OCU schismatics with you know the new Archbishop Georgios, whose election we covered very closely on the show. He was a big supporter of the schismatics as well as some of the other powerful bishops have been switched, you know, like Metropolitan Isaiah of Tomasos, we have a few others, but Metropolitan Yofitos we know has stood strong, as well as Metropolitan Nikiforos of Kikos, and well, he's, again, he has stood strong, but has still expressed a desire to, you know, he will concelebrate with the Archbishop, and he will still do that, despite openly, you know, recognizing Onufri as the head, he's very concerned about church unity in Cyprus, whereas Metropolitan Yofitos, he you know, he stayed at home and prayed for the persecuted church in Ukraine as opposed to attending the enthronement of Archbishop Georgios. But what's even more interesting, and I think, you know, forgive me for taking any kind of pleasure in division in the church, it just is, you know, I would say pretty baller what this uh, Metropolitan did. Of course, Metropolitan Georgios was the Metropolitan of Paphos before he then became Archbishop Georgios of, you know, the equivalent of the Patriarch of the Church of Cyprus. And of course, very quickly after he was elected, one of the first things he did was they consecrated a new bishop of Paphos. And they, of course, elected a Metropolitan Tichikos. He is a younger bishop than some of these other guys. And he was actually the spiritual child of Archbishop Georgios. Um, and he has since explicitly refused to support the Ukrainian schismatics to the point where he has now refused to celebrate with Archbishop Georgios, because he knows the Ukrainian schismatics will be commemorated. And I just find it interesting, after doing this, uh, Archbishop Georgios, he 
This is from Orthochristian. Characterized the Metropolitan of Paphos stance as, quote, childish. Epiphany of Kiev was commemorated on the day that Metropolitan Tichikos was consecrated as a bishop. So how can he reject Epiphany now? The Archbishop wonders. Which, uh, you know, it just shows you. I think he uh, he was playing it close to the chest. He was obedient to his spiritual father. But once, you know, he was granted the power to bind and loose as a bishop, you know, by the church, he decided now was the time, you know, he had waited enough, was the time to stand by his principles and stand by the canons. So I think it's just a very interesting development. It shows you that no matter how, quote unquote, institutionalized you might think of a certain church figure as, the Holy Spirit can always, you know, speak the truth and you know schism can always be rejected yeah and i think ultimately again uh, this this entire schism is a huge painful wound on the russian greek relations because you have to remember the russian orthodox church prevents any of its laity as well as clergy from essentially co-celebrating and participating in the mysteries and uh divine rights of uh of the greek churches so essentially cyprus is included there russia cannot invite say neophytos of morphu to um, Ukraine to serve in any of the liturgical rites is simply just that would just go against its regulation. Metropolitan Anufri can't do the same. In fact, and I don't even think Metropolitan Neophytos could do this. So it's uh, it's essentially incredibly painful. This entire schism has perpetuated this brief uh, this brief rift in Russian Greek relations. But of course, historically, as we know, schisms have lasted for a lot longer. Some schisms have lasted for decades and were resolved, you know, fairly amicably in the end with... So the church does have these internal mechanisms of resolving the schism. So at least those of you listening who may be uh, at least negatively affected by this or feel like, uh, you know, this thing will last forever. You know, it has been five years, but in fact, you know, the churches are working on them. Obviously, the fact that this schism has lasted so long and there seems to be this bizarre stubbornness from these uh, pro-Western, pro-Ukrainian hierarchs, it's definitely due to Western influence. So it's definitely Western influence. There's no logic to it. There's no theological backing. It's not a theologumenon of any sort. It's it's all artificially, politically inspired. And, the, and we're not talking about church-inspired politics. These are raw, secular considerations here. It's essentially they're using the these Greek jurisdictions as geopolitical weapons against uh, United, essentially, the entire Orthodox world community, generally, not just Russia, because again, uh, you know, working on the schism for many years on their end, of course, the uh, the Council of Crete, etc., all these e- ecumenical considerations, and on top of that, now they've have this Ukrainian ace up their sleeve. It's generally speaking, uh, quite a negative thing. So, of course, these hierarchs actually independently making decisions for themselves, not co-celebrating, not joining heretics and schismatics, because again, if you have to remember, the church canons actually equivalent. In terms of higher, uh, in terms of worship and where schismatics and heretics fall, they are on the same page. So schismatics and heretics, the church views them in exactly the same way, and in fact, they are somewhat synonymous too. So there isn't really an uh, like you kind of claim, oh well, I'm not going to co-celebrate with heretics, but I'll co-celebrate with schismatics. No, it's one and the same essentially in the eyes of the church. So co-celebrating with Epiphany or any of his clergymen who come over to Cyprus on a, for a Mediterranean holiday, like Zaluzny, right? Uh, that's not a good idea. Uh, they shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't co-celebrate with them. So again, kudos to the righteous hierarchs of Cyprus. I think that's a great thing. Well, and I guess we also recently saw. Patriarch Bartholomew appear with Dumenko and say, you know, the OCU will always be, you know, the Church of Ukraine. Anyone who rejects their autocephaly, you know, rejects, is against orthodoxy, all this stuff. And I'm just wondering if that has anything also to do with, I mean, last week we also covered the terrible thing in public orthodoxy from those clowns that, you know, was just 
you know, slandering the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and being pro the schismatics and saying that, you know, narratives about their persecution aren't true. And, you know, of course, we have seen a slight decline in the persecution. I'm wondering if, you know, Bartholomew, some of the State Department lackeys and these these characters were like, hey, you guys, you know, maybe pump the brakes on this. You're giving these people too much legitimacy. The blood, the, the, there's too much blood of the mar- the waters that's watering the church too much. Like, you need to, uh, <laughs> like, because that was true. Like, there was, uh, like, you couldn't see anything about the, the church without seeing enough people just, you know, ratioing it on Twitter or people just like no one in the Orthodox church that I'm aware of is like an explicit supporter of the OCU. Even the people that may not be, they may be more pro-Ukrainian, you know, they just think the whole situation is sad. Yeah, that's right. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's essentially very negative and it does play into, you know, other jurisdictional issues such as the, you know, the Russian church is actually expanding in Africa faster than the Greek Orthodox Church of Alexandria is. So you have to consider that the uh, the Russian Orthodox are now evangelizing Africa uh, essentially at the same speed as what, what the Greek hierarchs were doing, minus the various uh, weird racisms which were taking place. And nothing against the righteous hierarchs of the Alexandrian Church, but a lot of them did side with their synod when they began supporting Epiphany. And I believe mostly it had to do with the Patriarch of Alexandria's, uh, Alexandria's personal so Patriarch Theodoros was, or at least became very good friends of Epiphany. There's photographs of them together, basically hanging out. I'm sure they agree. Uh, it's it's not just um, that he's being blackmailed or he's siding with um, the ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew. It's simply that Patriarch Theodoros, I believe, actually believes that that Epiphany is, has some sort of um, blessing from God in order to rule the metropolitan, the, the metropolis of Kiev. So it is, it is very bizarre in that case. So yeah, the issues of Cyprus, Russia still hasn't, like Russia does not have an exarchate in Cyprus. So in fact, Cypriots have less reason to be upset at Russia than say the, the Greeks of the Greeks of Africa and Alexandria. So I think that, that too, Russians haven't in fact agitated Cyprus much, but you do hear online sometimes whenever Russia makes a positive move towards Turkey, you do see a lot of uprising and claims that how can Russia support Turkey when Turkey made, you know, turned the Hagia Sophia museum into a mosque? Well, look, what's more offensive, Hagia Sophia being a museum or a mosque? In in my eyes, Conrad, I feel like they're both quite offensive. I feel like the church of, if, if it's a church of God, if it's consecrated, which it isn't. The Hagia Sophia consecration was essentially lifted. The church was uh, not only was blo- massive blood spilt in the church, people were raped in the church in 1453. So the church is not the Hagia Sophia Cathedral. M- many must realize it needs to be reconsecrated. It needs a great, what you would call a great consecration service. It, you cannot conduct uh, the Holy Spirit as in even in that vision that occurred during the siege of Constantinople. The Holy Spirit and the grace that God has abandoned the Hagia Sophia. So in fact, Hagia Sophia needs to be blessed again before we can even call it a mosque or you know call one or the other worse. It is in the worst state possible it has been since 1453. The church is not. I mean, dogs were allowed into it. Muslims greatly disrespected that place from the beginning. So the fact that Erdogan made it has made it into a mosque doesn't, in fact, somehow add another mark against the Orthodox Church. No, the place has been disrespected for over 600 years now. We just have to get over it. Once God grants grants it back to us, the Orthodox people, then we can, of course, clean it up and bless it again. But for now, we shouldn't really... Our politics shouldn't be determined by this uh, great artwork of the Orthodox history. I think geopolitics uh, and sort of real, real considerations based in the Orthodox faith come first. And, you know, we have to keep this in mind. We, there shouldn't be any wars over this uh, particular cathedral, I think. Even the Russian Empire never considered, of course, attacking Turkey just over the fact that, over this one cathedral, the considerations were much grander than that. Or what's worse, a convoluted geopolitical relationship that doesn't, in your mind, adequately consider this one thing, or, you know, 
con celebrating and recognizing schismatics, you know, like kind of, you know, bored in your eye of your neighbor kind of thing. But obviously within Go Arch, we also, of course, saw another episode of El Pitafotos at at St. Bartholomew's, you know, Episcopal Church in New York with uh, gay flags and everything like that on, you know, the feast day of St. Bartholomew with the blessing of Patriarch Bartholomew. So, well, you know, we were a bit white-pilled on Patriarch Bartholomew last week with him smacking down El Pitofotos and, you know, rejecting his reworking and takeover of the Goarch Synod and seemingly apologizing to the Goarch Synod and the faithful for his actions. Well, it seems that that only extended so far and had nothing to do with actual the substance of what El Pitofotos is about and modernity and, you know, all that jazz. So, you know, the Green Patriarch, as he's called, you know, we're we're we're... we're we're awaiting 2025 with dread as, you know, as things go on, some of us fear the worst, if, you know, some people know what I mean there. Yeah, I think it's almost as if, at least in the Greek Orthodox community of America, the alphabet community itself is has a, a larger stakeholders than, say, even Greek monarchists or Greek conservatives or people who, you know, even Greek nationalists of some sort. It, it seems like whenever El Pidophorus makes these sort of concessions, the alphabet community just takes more and and it just creates a bad image for the church, generally speaking, because one of the strengths of the Orthodox Church is that it stands very strong in its dogmas and traditions, and it doesn't concede to all these worldly worldly degeneracies. So El Pidophorus does, I mean, even though he, mind you, he only controls a very small part of the Orthodox Church in the world, probably less than 1% of the overall demographic population, and he's simply one archbishop, right, when there's you know, hundreds more archbishops other than him in the entire world. But the fact that he's, you know, he's well-spoken in English and he appears on these, uh, on these English media shows and makes appearances in Verse for Biden, all these degenerate things, be it marches, BLM, this only, this only, of course, uh, paints the Orthodox Church in a bad light in America. So generally speaking, it, it not, not only is it bad for him personally, appearing as a, as a supporter of the uh, alphabet community alongside, you know, in this, in this, I'm not even sure this heretical structure, right? Co-celebrating things like that, but it's it also affects Orthodox people in America very badly. Because again, those who the the mainstream media paints all of Orthodox either as very separate, disparate members of these uh, ethnic communities, the Antiochians, the Arabs, the Greeks, Americans, Russians, as very separate, or they all paint us under the same brush as oh we're all related and this guy is your leader. No, he isn't. In fact, say Conrad, for example, belongs to the Antiochian Church. Elpidophorus has no say on what Conrad's church jurisdiction uh, does. Like he, you know, he can't commit the same sins within its borders. So yeah, so the, of course the mainstream media disingenuously either paints orthodoxy in America as very, various kind of weird these ethnic broken off communities, or they paint it with one brush. Like the entire church supports the alphabet community based on what Elpidophorus does. The entire the entire church supports BLM. It definitely does not. And I think the evidence kind of the evidence is quite clear when you check the overall view of the hierarchs in the United States. Generally, it's still the conservative views still win out. You're right. Elpidophoros presides over, you know, maybe half a million Orthodox Christians at best. You know, maybe if you count what's going on in Canada, maybe 600,000, something like that. But again, he's the head of a synod, which has maintained its power as having multiple metropolitans. You know, those metropolitans have real power. And Again, he's also only relevant because he's considered a possible likely successor to Patriarch Bartholomew, which seems more and more unlikely as, you know, he gets smacked down in his ambitions and, you know, he has apologies issued on his behalf. And 
that's not necessarily a good thing. There's people like Emmanuel of Chalcedon who could be like even exponentially worse somehow than Bartholomew and even Elpidophoros. So, you know, keep all of that in your prayers. But it's important that, yeah, we recognize. You're right, exactly. Me and Dimitri have, uh, Elpidophoros has no power over us. You know what I mean? Like, I'm under Metropolitan Saba, you know, of the Antiochian Archdiocese. And, of course, Dimitri's the Russian church abroad. And there's just... Under there's just absolutely no like like but at the same time like that doesn't mean that Greek Orthodoxy has nothing to do with like Antiochian Orthodoxy. If anything, the Greeks will have more disdain for Elpidophoros than me because they're actually affiliated with him. That's what I always find. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's right. It's uh, it, it's it's this harsh balance, and it also affects any considerations of the American Orthodox community in uniting, say, around the, a single core. Have this you know this big council of bishops, which runs the entire thing, similar to the Holy Synod in the Russian Empire. If a certain structure like that was to be formed of various bishops from different jurisdictions, Elpidophoros would have to be part of the equation. But who'd want a guy like that joining in and kind of giving his left wing takes and? You know, probably uh, poisoning the well, so to speak. Of course, one bishop cannot poison uh, the the well of a, an Orthodox synod. So, to, you know, of course, we, we even saw that the councils of Rokor in uh, 1983. There were some bishops who were clearly more liberal than others, right? During uh, the canonization of all the Russian new martyrs and Tsar Nicholas II, etc., and uh, Saint John of Kronstadt, there was there were clearly some bishops who were um, they didn't want to downplay the canonization of saint nicholas ii and his family but they definitely could definitely try to lighten the effect of you know of the of the rhetoric which was clear that he was ritually murdered that he was a catechon etc that his name should be remembered first in the liturgy when the new martyrs are being uh, commemorated which in the end that conservative view did win out which is in fact why we commemorate him first and then we commemorate the new martyrs uh, saint benjamin saint vladimir etc and all the other new martyrs killed under communism so yeah so it is possible for both liberals or i guess more left-leaning progressive bishops and right-wing bishops to work on the same council. So, yeah, but anyways, it, it's all it's all a message towards the fact that when American orthodoxy does become more solidified and united around a certain core, which side will you know hold dominance? Will it be the progressives or the conservatives in the end? Uh, because I doubt the Amer- American orthodoxy will, of course, unite around a single figure. I don't think it'll be a clear transition into a patriarchate or an archbishopric where I mean I think it'll it'll have to be a patri- patriarchate in the in the end after after everything because you can't simply have an archbishop ruling over multiple metropolitans and multiple other archbishops which their sees are even older than. Say, I mean, it, it would just be a little bit too confusing for both Greeks, Russians, Serbs, Antiochians. So, yeah, that's kind of the prospects yeah, I mean, and speculative. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's over a million of us, you know, and there's a whole. I mean, the, the I've been there. The whole the Metropolia of Montenegro. It's a, you know a complex and vast network, and obviously it's more concentrated in this little country. But you would need something even bigger than that technically to rule over America, because America has you know four hundred thousand plus more Orthodox Christians than Montenegro. So. You know, it's a, it's 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 a big venture, and you know, I think it's just an interesting discussion in general. I, mean, I think it's obvious that Elpidophoros is one of the largest impediments right now to Orthodox unity in America, but we we see a lot of, you know, efforts towards that. I mean, we've seen for the first time in decades, Rokor and the OCA con celebrating at Saint Tikon's monastery for you know the feast day of Saint Tikon, and it shows that even though Rokor is not actually on the assembly of bishops anymore due to Goarch's leadership of it. The problem is Elpidophotos and Goarch, not actually Rokor or the rest of the assembly of bishops. Because remember, once Elpidophotos tried to elevate, you know, the defrocked Hieromonk Belia 
who you know stole a monastery and perished from Rokor and tried to join the Goarch's fake Slavic Vicariate. He was, of course, defrocked by Rokor, and then Elpidophotos tried to make him a bishop, and all the other members of every single other jurisdiction in the U.S. said, we're going to leave the Synod of Bishops, the Assembly of Bishops, if you uh, go through with this, because we recognize Belia's defrocking by Rokor. And now this has gone all the way up to the Supreme Court, where Belia is challenging you know, Rokor's defrocking and all this stuff, which totally violates religious liberty, goes against, you know, the the government should not be allowed to come into these church administrations and say whether or not the Russian church should or should not have defrocked this cleric who was forging letters. He literally, you know, was he was like making forgeries of letters and all sorts of horrible, horrible things. And now, you know, he's going to unfortunately have his uh, case heard in court because, uh, I mean, even Elpidophotos has to almost disavow this guy because... Once uh, all of the heads of the of the Antiochian Church, you know, the Serbian Church, you know, the Romanians, the Bulgarians, OCA, all these people that are all in the Assembly of Bishops, with Goarch, because Elpidophotos is the head of the Assembly of Bishops, they uh, received these letters once they refused to recognize Belia, that Belia was going to sue all of them. And Elpidophotos immediately made him, like, retract the letters, but they had all already received them. So they're like, yeah, this guy's a psycho, we're never going to support him. So... It just shows you that, like you said, once El Pinophotos is gone, I think they're gonna. There will be a pretty interesting. We'll probably see some good progress, I think, towards Orthodox unity in the United States. Yeah, it's it's very uncanny, actually, the fact that um, you know, uh, the the sort of image of Saint Tikhon being the uniting figure in um, American Orthodoxy, and then of course him traveling back to to Russia to become the patriarch and essentially be the last patriarch who serves in the old Christ the Savior Cathedral before it gets destroyed by Stalin. Because interestingly enough, before in nineteen twenty three, the cathedral actually gets taken by somebody like Belia in the Soviet Union in 1923, it gets overtaken by these schismatic weirdos similar to the ones Zelensky's supporting called the Renovationists. And the Renovationists are these Bolshevik-supporting schismatic priests and bishops. They take Christ the Savior Cathedral, and since 1923 until 1931, when the when the Stalin signs off and it's on the cathedral's destruction, the first cathedral now, of course, it's been rebuilt. For all those years, the last years of the cathedral, not a single proper Orthodox liturgy was served in it. It was all schismatic heretical texts read it within those walls. So in fact, it's not really unprecedented that somebody like Belia could steal a cathedral. It's happened before on legal grounds. The renovationists stole St. Tikhon's main cathedral in Moscow from him. And, you know, the Soviet government supported it. So the fact that, you know, if the US government somehow interferes or supports Belia's case here, I think it'll be uh, almost, you know, it'll be very similar to what Zelensky is doing in, in Ukraine. It'll be very similar to what the Soviets did in the 20s and the 30s, supporting these uh, degenerate schismatics, these weirdos. And of course, all it points towards is that the powers of the world are not pro-Orthodox. The unfortunate case, I guess, not the it's not unfortunate, it's just the, the way that it is, reality the Orthodox reality calls for us to be aware that uh, there are many enemies, right, in the world. And, of course, we have to love and pray for our enemies, but we do have to be aware that they exist and they do not want good things for us, which kind of takes us, t- takes us away from this airy-fairy view that everyone's out here uh, to live in harmony and to support us. No, nobody, uh, uh, we Orthodox people are the underdogs, especially in countries like the United States of America, and we are to be always cautious that we may be either taken advantage of or that something negative may happen to us. We need to pray pray to God for protection and for him to, uh, you know, essentially, if he does send these tribulations to us for his support, naturally. No, I mean, obviously, as was written in by Father Seraphim Rose, you know, in the Platina monks, you know, today in Russia, tomorrow in America regarding 
the Soviet persecutions. But of course, we have, you know, that exhortation from the Athenite saint, St. Joseph, you know, Elder Ephraim, that someday America will be Orthodox, will be holy, which, you know, I guess those two things do go hand in hand, especially based on what we're seeing in Russia, Romania, Serbia, these former communist countries, and how they've emerged from their persecution as, you know, the bastions of Orthodoxy that they are. So, you know, may it be blessed, of course. But unless you have anything you want to tap us into about this past week or anything going on, Dimitri, we're about ready to wrap it up. Uh, not really. Just a, just another last story that I saw a very interesting uh, happened t- two weeks ago, actually, but only made the news recently because, again, it's Orthodox news in Russia. But uh, the oldest Russian theologian, at least alive at the time, is a famous uh, catechizer, actually, of Orthodox people, famous uh, apologist for the Orthodox faith. Alexei Osipov was congratulated by Patriarch Kirill. He turned 85 years old. And, you know, he's been active since the Soviet years promoting orthodoxy in Russia and, of course, reaching 85 years. He's very famous on YouTube. His videos uh, have millions of views overall. Uh, he's incredibly um, charismatic and he's a very good speaker. He knows the uh, he knows the scriptures, the church fathers off by heart. And, yeah, he does have some strange views. But generally speaking, he his orthodoxy is quite clear and he is supported by the church. But Patriarch Kirill grants him this award on his 85, uh, 85th birthday and... Uh, funny enough, Osipov comes up to the to the microphone, and what does he say? They say thank you, and he says, "Well, firstly, he, can, he thanks uh, the Holy Father Patriarch Kirill." Then he says, "And just so everybody remembers, there is the prophecy of the um, there is a prophecy said by the Russian elders prior to the revolution that you know there'll be a persecution, then there'll be a time of no persecutions, but then persecutions will begin again." Thank you for the award. And he just <laughs> walks off the stage, and it's just like, okay, well, so uh, <laughs> Professor Osipov, uh, so he just says this prophecy to the crowd, to Patriarch Kirill, and walks away. And mind you, he was, uh, he, I wouldn't even say he's the most conservative Russian theologian at the moment, but he just mentions that. And I'm not sure if he, that prophecy was pointing towards the persecution in Ukraine or p- future possible persecutions in the case of, like, you know, civil war in Russia or some other degeneracy or overseas persecutions of Orthodox people, but... That was simply something that took place uh, in the last two weeks. Very strange, mysterious, but very much in light of and very much in the genre of what we speak about here in World War Now. And there's always the long shot of the Chinese invasion of the East, you know, can never be, can never get too careful. But uh, that's a great place to end it with all of that, you know, worldwarnow.substack.com, everybody. Link in the description or the show notes to see, you know, everything else, you know, whether you're on YouTube or on Substack, please give us a like. Give us a share. It really, really helps us out, you know, uh, especially as things really start to come to a head in some of these conflicts. You know, we want to make sure the word is getting out, so send it around. Uh, we're on Twitter, World War Now underscore. I'm on Twitter, Gnome Rad. Dimitri's on Twitter at Ocanonist. Uh, follow us on Telegram, World War Now Telly. That's T-E-L-E at the end of World War Now. Yeah, subscribe to us on YouTube, obviously. we got some articles coming up on the Substack, so keep your eyes peeled you know leave us a comment tell us you know what you want to hear us talk about on ether hour next we've got some of those episodes coming up talking about communism orthodoxy history among other things philosophy so stay tuned for that big things coming up but yeah dimitri give us a send off thank you everybody for listening of course subscribe support us if you can it really means a lot to us and it of course, perpetuates our creativity as well as the time we can commit to these programs, writings, and you know, for your own benefit. Of course, give us feedback if you have any, and we salute all of you, Orthodox Christians. God bless, and of course, keep listening to us, keep supporting us, and we'll you know keep giving back in the fullest. Thank you, guys. God bless y'all.